HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Cane Vineyard and Winery, a Napa Valley winery committed to respecting the soil and dedicated to the creation of three Cabernet blends. For more information, visit Cane5.com. I'm Greg Blaze, host of Cutting the Curd. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Welcome to Eating Matters, where we talk about the food policy issues that shape our everyday experiences of growing, buying, and eating food. We're broadcasting live from Roberta's here in Bushwick, Brooklyn, on Heritage Radio Network, and I'm your host, Kim Kessler, with the Resnick Program for Food Law and Policy at UCLA School of Law. On today's show, we are going to be talking about farm workers and farm labor. For many of us, when we go to the market or the bodega or a restaurant to buy our food, we don't often think about who picked the produce, who butchered the meat. Even as there is an increased consumer consciousness about other aspects of food production, from animal welfare to pesticide use in the food system, the topic of those working in food production jobs and their employment conditions has really lagged behind in consumer consciousness. Food Chains is a forthcoming documentary that is aimed at changing that. The movie tells the story of farm laborers in Florida who are battling for living wages and basic human rights. It follows a highly lauded group of tomato pickers, the Coalition for Immokalee Workers, as they take on supermarket retailing giant Publix in their struggle for fair wages. And I am very pleased to have with me Joining me on the program today, two of the film's producers, Sanjay Rawal, who is also the film's director, and Smitri Kashari. Hi to you both. Hi, Kim. How are you? Thanks for having us. Good. I'm great to hear your voice. And Smitri, you're calling in as well, I think, from more distant shores. I am. I am. Uh, Greetings from Louisiana, and thanks for having us. Excellent. So before we dive into the interview, I want to start today's show with a clip from the movie. believe agriculture is the backbone of America. And when you have an industry as, as big as 
agriculture, you've got to pay attention to the labor force. The history of farm labor in the United States is a history of exploitation. The plantation and the ghetto were created by those who had power both to confine those who had no power and to perpetuate their powerlessness. All my life, I have been driven to overthrow a farm labor system in this nation that treats farm workers as if they were not important human beings. These people have suffered tremendously and uh, grown much more slowly economically than any other segment of our society. The appalling conditions of farm workers moved my brother to crack down on the abuses. But too little has changed over the years. Their working conditions are deplorable, but most of them are afraid to demand fair treatment because they know they'll be fired, blacklisted, or turned over to immigration officials. It is terribly important that we understand how in the year 2008, slavery, slavery can exist and how workers can be treated as badly as they are. Most people have no idea that they're connected to this system every time they buy fresh fruits and vegetables. All the fresh fruits and vegetables in supermarkets arrive there via the supply chain, an intricate system of distributors, farmers, and farm workers. Supermarkets set all the rules in the supply chain. The prices consumers pay, how farmers grow their crops, what these crops can look and taste like, and ultimately, how much money is left over to pay workers at the bottom of the supply chain. While all the workers who pick their produce live below the poverty line, these massive corporations generate a half a trillion dollars a year in the U.S. alone. I think the entire supermarket business goes out of its way so that you're not reminded of where your food came from. If a handful of companies decided that they wanted to eliminate poverty and exploitation among farm workers, it could happen very, very quickly. Pennies more on uh, purchases of fresh fruits and vegetables could eliminate this problem. So there, there's so much there, and you hear so many voices in that clip. Sanjay, can you explain what, who's talking there and what, uh, what that clip tells us about the history of this issue? Now, that clip begins with our executive producer, Eva Longoria, um, kind of giving an overview of how important farm labor is in our food system. It's often overlooked um, that is the role that hands play in delivering food to our tables. This day and age, and this echoes Eric Schlosser's comment, there's so much interest in food. I mean, we think about where our food comes from, how it's grown, how it's prepared. I mean, we watch people on TV making food, but I don't think we're at a stage yet where people are consciously thinking about the lives of the people that help to provide that food. The, uh, the narrator's voice that people heard was Forrest Whitaker's. And as people know, he's been involved with social justice issues for decades. Um, recently, he did that movie, he produced the movie Food Cell Station about civil rights violations and racism still inherent in American society. And, and that goes back, you know, hundreds of years in the U.S., actually to our farm economies, which, you know, were for 150, 200 years were dependent solely on the labor of slaves. So in, in the agricultural sector, while consciousness of food and food sourcing has begun to increase, I think there's still a lag in people's awareness of the human aspect of that system. And to some extent, 
even just the range of voices that you hear there, going back to Martin Luther King and Robert Kennedy, um, and yet having so many of these issues persist, I think speaks to that. Can you talk about, you know, what makes this an issue that is so static in terms of our progress? That, that's a great question, Kim. You know, and it's something that Smitty and I have, 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 have thought a lot of. When we started the film, we started, we started our, our, our production in California, and we drove through a number of states, and we kept hearing just horrific cases of exploitation. And, you know, at, at, a, at some stage, you know, we were, were overwhelmed by the exploitation and, frankly, posed the question, why, in this day and age, are these issues still in existence? And that's what took us to Immokalee, Florida, a small little farm worker community just outside Naples, where the CIW, or Coalition of Immokalee Workers, are based. And they developed a unique way to look at the food system, um, particularly with the, from, from the labor standpoint. They realized that in this day and age, supermarkets and the supermarket industry have more power than they ever have. Um, and that power is really dependent on their, you know, their, their, the, the connection to their consumers. And so these farm workers in southern Florida, much like the USW did, they reached out to consumers to pressure uh, supermarkets. But their vantage point and their tactic was different. Um, rather than just having consumers demand certain types of products uh, to be carried in stores, they demanded that these supermarkets use their massive power to ensure that all the farm workers in the tomato supply chain were treated well and paid well. So in, in, in that sense, you know, the, the issue to tackle this problem is very much a consumer-facing issue, and it's one that really looks at the inherent power of fast food restaurants and supermarkets in our food system. In- one of the things to kind of add to that, that, Kim, you were saying of sort of why it's, it- this issue has been so static and so constant is because the history of exploitation in our in our country, our farm labor has always relied on this other vulnerable force, um, and that's why right now it's kind of such a great time because through the work of of the coalition of them kind of recognizing the power structure and really using the power of the voice of the consumer to put pressure on on the supermarkets, the people on the top of the supply chain. That's really the only way to kind of be able to get out of that staticness. So before we talk a little bit more about how that works in practice and how they've used these consumer-facing campaigns, I want—I I think one thing the movie does a good job of is showing what the regular daily life of some farm workers is like. Um, Smitri, can you, I mean, it actually opens, right, with a family waking up at 4.30 in the morning. So Smitri, can you tell us a little bit about um, about the typical life of somebody who's t- picking tomatoes in Florida. Yeah, absolutely. So um, we spent a time with, with a lot of different farm workers um, all around the country. And, and in Florida, as the film opens, we, um, you know, we follow um, a day in the life of, and we start off um, in the morning. Oftentimes, farm workers have a really long commute to even get to the fields where they will be picking so they're waking up at 3, 4 in the morning, um, getting their lunches ready, um, getting their kids ready to be able to drop them off at daycare. 
Um, and then from there, they, they meet at a central picking point, um, a, a point where buses come and, and pick them up. In Immokalee, it's, it's the main parking lot. Um, and from there, they, they get on the buses, um, and they can travel from, you know, from fields that might be 30 minutes away to two hours away. And their sort of working day, the, the amount that they're getting paid for, it doesn't start until they actually start picking. So that whole time of while they're commuting isn't part of the equation. Um, and, and then they're, they're out there in the fields. Um, it's, you know, it's Florida in the, it's Florida season, so it's, it's really hot and they're out there all day. Um, and then the day ends and then they, um, and sometimes it's eight, 10, 12 hour days. Um, and then from there, the, they commute back, um, and they don't get home at times until seven, eight o'clock, and then they have to pick up their kids, um, and, and do it over again the next day. And what does it mean for, for the children in those families? Well, I think that, you know, one of the important things um, about that question that you just asked is actually kind of the, the role of the female farm worker, the mother. Um, she's not just kind of the, not just the mom and sort of taking care of the children, but also um, an equal income um, or breadwinner of the family. And, and not being able to kind of have that time to spend with the child, it, it puts a lot of sort of pressure on, on them. Um, and we've spoken to many female farm workers, and that's kind of one of the um, points where they wish that they had more time. And even in with these constraints of, um, of the amount of the conditions that they're working in, there has been this effort to organize. So returning to the work of the Coalition for Immokalee Workers, um, can you take us through some of their early successes and the point that they're at now as an organization? When the CIW started in the 90s, they kind of followed the, um, the traditional unionizing model that looked at uh, the people that employed them directly. They, they started strikes against local farmers. But they realized, you know, from speaking to farmers, that the power structure of agriculture had changed. Farmers no longer held as much power as they did uh, before 1990. And in fact, since 1990, since you know, the supermarket industry underwent a massive consolidation, farmers have had their profits have their profits have gone down by 50 percent over the last 20 years. So even if a farmer wanted to be able to pay a worker a fair wage, they really couldn't. And that led to a moment of epiphany by the CIW. They realized that they needed to take their battle for fair wages and human rights to the end buyer, to the, the sector of the supply chain that held the, the most power. And they began by protesting local Taco Bells in the southern Florida area. And gradually, college students began to get involved and were responsible for kicking almost 70 Taco Bells off of college campuses. With that, Taco Bell finally came to the table and asked the CIW what they wanted. The CIW said that they wanted two simple things. They wanted Taco Bell to pay an extra one penny per pound which would go directly to workers and double the wages of those workers. Tomato pickers are only paid a little more than a cent for every pound that they, that they pick. Um, secondly, they demanded that Taco Bell use its market power and refuse, categorically refuse to buy from farms that have had human, human rights violations. And what that resulted in 
um, after 11 other companies, including Walmart, signed on. What that's resulted in is farms in the tomato industry in Florida having an economic incentive to treat workers well. And since their fair food program, this human rights, pro-human rights program has been in effect, the CIW has seen a dramatic decrease in uh, reports of sexual harassment, workplace violence, physical, psychological abuse. And equally as importantly, the money from these end buyers has been able to make a real impact on the lives of workers as an extra you know, cash bonus for all the hard hours that they're putting in the field. So one issue, when you talk about consumers being the end point, you know, there's, there's always concern about affordability and especially affordability of produce in our country. Um, so how, what, what is the, what, what is the um, opportunity in terms of having consumers pay more? How much does that cost consumers and where does the, where is the give in the system if it's not with the farmers? And we know that a lot of consumers are struggling with affordability. Well, this is the exciting thing about the CIW's program. Most of us are, you know, we kind of frame um, the discussion for better food from our experience with organic food, where to eat well, to eat organically, um, that might cost us a dollar or two more per pound for our produce. Um, In the case of of the CIW's Fair Food Program, to ensure that the tomato pickers are being treated fairly and paid well, the cost to the retailer is just one penny per pound. So for a, a tomato, for instance, that might cost $1.98 per pound. Um, that increased amount that would ensure, um, the, uh, you know, ensure the absence of human rights violations, that would cost a consumer or the retailer just one penny more per pound. We did a calculation based on all the tomatoes that a family of four eats. You know, if, if they themselves were to pay this extra subsidy out of their own pocket, it would amount to 44 cents per year per family of four. And if this model of subsidizing wages through adding money to the retail price um, were adopted by every single, or adopted for every single crop, the average family of four would have to pay an extra $66 per year. That, that would ensure that every single farm worker who picked fresh produce in the U.S. would receive a living wage. Just sixty plus dollars per year for a family of four—it's it's nothing. So it's an incredible, it's nothing. An incredible number, and I want to take a quick break and then come back and talk more about why, given the numbers that you just talked about, there is still resistance to the CIW and other similar types of proposals. So first, we'll take a break and then we'll come back. <laughs> listening to It's Cold and Beautiful by Magical Mistakes. This is Chris Howell from Cane Vineyard and Winery. 
calling in from Spring Mountain above the Napa Valley. Thank you for listening to this show. In our industrial world of highly processed food and wine, we support the values of Heritage Radio Network. All of us at Kane encourage you to seek out individuality and beauty in everything you eat and drink. To learn more about us, go to Kane5.com. Hello, this is Mark Ladner from Del Posto, and you're listening to Heritage Radio Network. Hi, everyone. We're back on Eating Matters, and today we're talking about the forthcoming documentary, Food Chains, which is focused on farm labor. So uh, we were just talking about the opportunity here in terms of providing living wages to farm workers in America and the, the very low cost of that, ultimately. Um, and the statistic, I think, that you shared was that if we were to pay a living wage to all farm workers for every piece of produce picked in this country, it would cost American families $66 per year. Is that right, Sanjay? That's correct. So I want to ask, given that, I mean, the, the film is really focused on this uh, one campaign by the Coalition of Immokalee Workers to interface with Publix, which is a major retailer in Florida, as anyone who's ever taken a trip to Florida knows. Um, so what is the, the fact that this seems to be a problem that's within reach in terms of solving it? What do you think the resistance is, and what are some of the things you've encountered um, in, in the course of producing the movie? Do you want to take that one? Maybe we lost her. I'm sorry. Um, you know, oh, what, sorry, one of the... Was, sorry, I was muted, well, but go ahead, Sanjay. Sorry. Um, one of the things that we, we, we've just been puzzled by is why large retailers haven't adopted the CIW's program en masse. Um, number one, what we think is that there's no real economic incentive, incentive for them to do so, without consumer pressure. You know, why, most companies are created just for profit, and why would they give up any of their profits, even a minuscule amount, if they don't have to? Um, but we've seen that when consumers organize around the fair food program, the result can be staggering, even without a large number of participants. Trader Joe's, for example, was the, 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 faced the brunt of um, a protest from the CIW for three to four years at least. But on one particular weekend, the CIW's allies and friends organized a nationwide action that would have sent about 100 to 200 um, consumers with signs um, and bullhorns uh, to about 30 or 40 Trader Joe's locations around the country. And that coordinated um, protest was the last straw for Trader Joe's. When they saw that the CIW's movement against Trader Joe's was really nationwide in scope and was going to draw people in 30 to 40 of, of Trader Joe's key markets. Trader Joe's realized that it would be better to sign on because what company doesn't want to, doesn't want to please their consumers? So it always takes a critical mass um, of action for companies to realize that the CIW's program is important to their bottom line. Now, with the case of Walmart, Walmart is perhaps an aberration. Um, Walmart and actually Whole Foods are both aberrations in the fair food program. Those companies, as being retailers, didn't require um, the, C the CIW to organize a massive consumer movement. Um, they both realized that the, the, mar the market itself is moving towards more holistic, better-sourced products, and they wanted to be leaders in that space. 
and they saw that the CIW's program was one of the best of its kind and, you know, signed on without that type of public leverage. So I, I think it's twofold. I think companies that really understand that the modern economy involves, is going to involve more transparency and, and a more ethical way of doing business, those companies will sign on without pressure. The companies that haven't signed on need, you know, need consumers to mobilize and let them know why we care about who picks our food. So it certainly fits in with a storyline we've seen in a lot of areas of food system reform, which is the role of the consumer and the role or the threat of uh, negative media exposure in driving certain systemic types of changes. But I want to ask, what is the role of government here and what, what's the context in terms of labor laws and um, why does our legal framework allow these kinds of conditions to persist? Smitri, is that something you can speak to? Sure, absolutely. Well, what's interesting is that the Department of Labor in Florida had, um, we were doing our research, there was about six inspectors, um, and they are only available, um, you know, there's a, they announce when they're going to go into the field, there's a hotline that operates on Wednesdays from like 2 to 3 p.m. Um, there isn't someone who's bilingual there, and so there's essentially no Department of Labor that is really in the field um, and holding the, the actions that are happening accountable. Um, and there just hasn't been that focus from a, from a legislative standpoint. Um, and that's why kind of the answer, the immediate answer right now really lies um, in the power of the, of the supermarkets. Um, they aren't regulated. Um, and so it's, but what inspires them is consumers. And, and money talks in this situation. And that's why kind of consumers putting that pressure, the same way that I think a lot of supermarkets have changed from the pressure of the organic movement, having this pressure of valuing farm workers more is what can really drive that change. So I want to... We have just a few minutes left, and I want to hear a little bit from both of you about your own career trajectories and what brought you to this subject in the making of this movie. So, Sanjay, maybe we can start with you. How did you become a filmmaker, and what drew you to this topic in particular? In, in, in brief, um, I'd, I'd always been involved in agriculture because my father is a tomato breeder, and he and I had done a lot of work together. At the same time, I was involved in human rights work around the world, and I was kind of pursuing my, my own path of, of just personal introspection, um, studying with an Indian spiritual teacher, Sri Chinmoy. And this film was the kind of convergence of all three of those themes. I realized that despite my own connection to agriculture, I knew very little about the hands that take my food. And when I found out about the exploitation in this country, I was shocked because I'd seen that exploitation overseas but could have never imagined that it would have existed here. And it hit me on a personal level because I try to feel grateful for my food, um, but I realized that my gratitude didn't extend all the way down the chain to the hands that pick that food. So the convergence of these three themes all at once in discovering the, these issues thing really hit me hard and inspired me to, um, to, to look at this as a topic of a film. And Smitri, what about you? And, yeah, and I think, you know, for me, what really... Um, I come from an immigrant background myself. Um, my parents and I, we came into the country when um, I was younger. And usually, um, you know, wh whenever there is an injustice that is occurring, um, 
usually and oftentimes the solution also lies in, in the hands and in the voices of the, of the people who are being affected. Um, and so when, um, you know, Sanjay called me about this topic matter, what really attracted me to it is being able to be there and lend a, lend a voice to the people who are in the front of that battle. Um, so, yeah, so that's what kind of brought me to it. And the movie is certainly a call to action, and I think both of your hopes is that it will be a vehicle for impact. Can you uh, share how you're, what you're what you would like to see those that are, have power over purchasing decisions have um, procurement decision-making um, and people with the ability to drive significant change, what are you hoping that they can take away from this movie? Well, one of the first things that we're um, really targeting the film is to really looking at it as a source of action. We want people to go and see the film to tell everyone that they know um, and, and join the movement. Um, we're, the impact of the film um, is, is utterly the most important to us. We want to use the filmmaking experience as a tool to action. So we're putting in a lot of efforts and a lot of partners are coming on board to, um, to help with protests, to sign petitions, and to really um, drive people to, to pressure their supermarkets. And the um, you know as we've been talking about the role of media in impacting the food system and as you're hoping to do with this movie is such a significant and growing one but can you say in the terms of not just the impact of the finished product but what's the role what's the impact of just the process of making the movie itself Um, in other words just asking the questions what did you observe about the filmmaking process uh, through this experience we, we were really lucky to have had a, a pretty high-profile executive production team with Eva Longoria and Fast Food Nation author Eric Schlosser. And we found that once larger retailers saw that they were involved in the project, they began to take the project much more seriously. And we've seen in the last few months that you know the, the CIW and other allies are able to use the film as a tool. Um, they're able to use this, the, the impending release of the film on November 21st nationwide as a way to engage with retailers that hadn't realized the, the scope and the penetration that their campaign has. I mean, they just received an award from President Clinton at the Clinton Global Initiative. Their approach to market-based solutions is about to go mainstream, and I think the movie is playing a, a, a small part in that. At the same time, they're organizing a number of protests around that November 21st nationwide release. Um, they're getting a number of, of local food justice groups, students, religious groups to all come out around the film's release, not just to watch the movie, but to take the action to the streets. So we're, we're seeing a unique opportunity in their you know, decades-long movement for farm worker justice. And we're seeing how this little bit of media can help in some cases to really amplify the impact that they've already been making, and to get a whole bunch of people, you know, excited, angered, enthusiastic, inspired, all at the same time about the battles that they and other farm worker groups around the country have been waging for decades. Uh, so I, I'm really excited because you are going to be screening the movie at UCLA in conjunction with the Resnick Program for Food Law and Policy. Um, and we're looking forward to that on Food Day, which is emphasizing food justice this year and labor issues this year. So 
you think that will be an exciting and timely event. But can you talk for others who aren't part of the UCLA community? When will they be able to see the movie and how can they see it? Absolutely. So, um, so jumping into it, this is really exciting because we're about five weeks out. The film comes out in theaters on November 21st. It's opening nationwide. Um, and on our website, foodchainsfilm.com, um, as well as our Facebook page, facebook.com slash foodchainsfilm, people can find out um, which theaters it's playing in. If it's in their cities, get tell all of their friends. Um, and if it's not, we actually have something called theatrical on demand, where they can demand to have it brought to their cities, to their local theaters. Uh, it's also going to be on cable, um, cable on demand, and as well as um, iTunes on Thanksgiving Day. Fantastic. So thank you. Of course, you. we've got the super duper sneak peek at UCLA, thanks to you, oh, yeah. Kim. <laughs> yes. Um, so again, people who are going to make it to that, they can be, they'll be treated to a great panel. Um, for those who can't make it, like Smriti said, there's a number of ways to find out where the, the film is showing by going to our website, foodchangefilm.com. Excellent. Yeah, we're, we're really looking forward to having the movie there. Um, so thank you both so much for joining Sanjay and Smitri, and I want to wish you luck with your movie um, and appreciate you being a part of the show today. And that will bring us to a close of this episode of Eating Matters on the Heritage Radio Network available online at the Heritage Radio Network website or at iTunes or Stitcher. I'm Kim Kessler and thank you so much for listening. Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archive programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. <laughs>